0: Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 24, Civilization, a summary of the Neolithic. One defining event, which for me, dictates the end of the Paleolithic and the beginning of the Neolithic, is the Younger Dryas. The Younger Dryas is a climatic event which affected the vegetation of the earth, particularly the Northern Hemisphere, and forced human beings into improving and adapting their skills in order to survive. This was caused by the temperatures dropping dramatically for a period of a thousand years or more. We initially speculated that this global temperature drop was caused by meltwater drifts interfering with climatic balances but there was recent evidence of an impact theory since the discovery of a crater near Greenland. Whatever caused it, this global temperature drop is called the Younger Dryas and happened between 11,000 and 9,500 BCE. There was also an Older Dryas and an Oldest Dryas which occurred during the interglacial before the Younger Dryas. It is named after the Dryas plant which is a northern hemisphere survivor of such temperature plunges. So we are going to explore what happened after the Younger Dryas, and we are going to try to stick closely to the path that this podcast has taken during the last nine episodes in a bid to summarise our story. But I will hasten to add, as ever, that this is the History of the World podcast story and is there to be challenged. Humans before the Younger Dryas would very likely have had an understanding of plants and their life and growth cycles. They would have known where to go to forage and they would have known the impact that the weather would and could have on these plants. They would have known what animals would eat these plants and they would have known what animals would have eaten the animals that ate the plants. They would have known how to alter forest areas to be able to attract animals to an area where they could be hunted more easily because they would have had an understanding of animal behaviours. They knew all of this because they were intelligent human beings who simply watched and learned. The younger Dryas would have had a very definite impact on the plants that were growing in areas such as the Fertile Crescent in the Near East and due to this human beings would have had to have adapted to the changing climate and its effects on the ecosystem. Initially, humans would have had to have found a way to preserve their foraging opportunities by controlling where and how essential grasses grew. These grasses were ultimately to become our cereal crops and the process of replanting the healthiest crops would lead to the domesticated varieties becoming normal and distinct from their wild relatives these cereal crops would be ground down and mixed with fluid such as water where it would become like a paste that could be eaten as a porridge or baked to become like a bread in order to safeguard these crop yields humans would have had to have lived near to them or risk losing them they would have already been quite adept at throwing up the odd reed dwelling here and there but humans started discovering the advantages of hardening the mixtures of earthen clay that could be extracted from the ground and it was by exploiting this natural resource that humans could start making mud bricks which could either be sun-dried or deliberately fired over a fire. They would have used these bricks to create more permanent dwellings. Not only would they construct dwellings, but they would also construct other practical buildings such as silos or storage rooms for the preservation of cultivated grain, not intended for immediate use. The human necessity to control animal populations increased as the human being's lifestyle became a settled, sedentary lifestyle. Some cultures would deliberately pastoralise herds by controlling their movements, while others would effectively imprison animals and control their breeding. This would ultimately lead to a similar domestication process that we discussed with the cereal plants earlier. Certainly, we believe that during the 2000 years immediately following the younger Dryas, wheat, barley and rye were commonly being cultivated in small sedentary villages sheep and goats were certainly being kept in these villages to supplement the human diet. We also believe that humans were able to transport domestic animals across the sea to islands such as Cyprus which may have been necessary if the human population was increasing rapidly due to this relatively new communal way of life. Humans remained very spiritual throughout this whole transition and parietal and portable art was now accompanied by some very permanent megalithic sites such as Gobekli Tepe, which are likely to have been constructed as a means to try and bless the productivity of nature and to honour the passing of the dead into a possible afterlife. Possibly by the 8th millennium BCE, the atmosphere of the northern hemisphere was a very precipitous one, and areas of desert which we recognise in today's world would have been more fertile back then. The Sahara Desert is believed to have been much more fertile from the 8th millennium BCE through until the 4th millennium BCE leading to the green Sahara theory of there being more marshes and grasslands across North Africa. Villages began to expand during this period and one of the first most notable large villages was Jericho in the modern west bank of Palestine. What is very notable in regards to Jericho is the construction of a wall and a tower which still puzzles historians to this day. Initial instincts would be to describe these things as defensive constructions built to keep invaders out. However, there doesn't appear to be a great deal of evidence of scale conflict elsewhere or even at Jericho, so it would appear that outsiders were more likely to be integrated than attacked. One of the other theories is that they were built to defend the town against floods. Another development which started to become more significant was that of portable containers. Certainly, Basket weaving was taking place in the Fertile Crescent, represented by evidence dating to around 7000 BCE, but also pottery was starting to emerge as well. Well, we spoke of these mud bricks that were hardened, and the same kind of thing happened with ceramics. The journey of ceramics throughout the Neolithic is considerable, with increasing populations making pottery an essential part of everyday life, as opposed to an ornamental luxury. For the earliest mentions of pottery, we need to go over to the Far East and discover the Jomon pots of Japan, which were from before the Younger Dryas. We believe that Jomon pottery could have originated from Chinese pottery from around 20,000 years ago. We believe that the pots from Jomon may have been fire hardened in a very standard manner with the clay pots being held over a fire. Most sources cite the first actual kilns are attributed to the Hasuna culture of Mesopotamia who we mentioned in episode 22. The archaeological site which is referred to is Yarim Tepe in the north of modern day Iraq. It is the site of many furnaces and ovens, so the presence of a kiln should maybe not be all that surprising. We guesstimate the dates of the earliest kiln to around 6000 BCE. We know that it was during the Neolithic that humans started exploiting native copper resources that they came across in particular areas of the world. The fact that humans were using heat assist with ceramic production may well have led to the smelting of native copper to create a pure variety which could be cast while in liquid form to produce metal tools and trinkets. Certainly we believe that copper smelting was going on at one of the earliest successful settlements of the Fertile Crescent, that being Çatalhöyük in Anatolia, modern Turkey. Huyuk is a very significant site when studying the early Neolithic period. Spindle whorls dating to the 7th millennium BCE have been found at Huyuk, demonstrating that humans had a good understanding of the uses of natural fibrous materials and this takes us full circle to the same principles being applied to the weaving of baskets and indeed nets for the purpose of hunting and fishing. Chattel Huyuk is also significant as it gives us the first glimpse of an emerging bustling trade network developing with the presence of obsidian at the site, something not natural to the area. Neolithic Progress Around the World Advances in technology and lifestyles were not exclusive to the Fertile Crescent. Climate change and population expansion were pressures that were being felt all around the world and very particularly the lands of the Northern Hemisphere. Agriculture emerged from as far west as Mesoamerica with the cultivation of squash and beans and as far east as China with the cultivation of millet. Dates as far back as 8,000 BCE have been suggested for both of these cultural changes, which strongly point towards humans having a long-standing understanding of the environments in which they lived, as agricultural lifestyles were something that had to be undertaken in order to survive in all areas of the world. It certainly cannot have been a knowledge that emerged in one place and spread around the world. The agricultural communities of China were centred around the Yangtze and Yellow rivers. The peoples of these areas became experts at cultivating millet and rice and domesticated pigs and chickens. As for those communities of Mesoamerica, they would master the ability to cultivate maize. By 5000 BCE, communities of South America, particularly those living in the areas of the modern day countries of Peru and Ecuador, had become expert maize farmers, and had domesticated guinea pigs. Cattle and pigs were animals that were domesticated around the world in many separate instances from different wild animals of the bovine and porcine animal families. They were certainly domesticated by communities of the Fertile Crescent by 7000 BCE. We also believe that this is a similar time that those hunter fisher communities of the Green Sahara areas of North Africa had domesticated cattle, maybe even independently from those fertile crescent communities. If we go across to the Indus Valley and modern day Pakistan, then we can see that they domesticated a very specific wild cattle of this particular area of the world, namely the Zebu cattle. If we take a closer look at the archaeological site of Mergar in modern day Pakistan, we can get a good overview of what is going on in this part of the world during the Neolithic. Definitely we can see some solid evidence of the domestication of zebu cattle around 7000 BCE. And we also know that the community living here would have been cultivating wheat, barley and pulses. One very notable advance of Mergar, is the fact that the people here appear to have been waterproofing their baskets with bitumen. Bitumen is a naturally occurring substance which is generally created from organic waste that has built up over the course of a long period turning into a highly viscous and sticky black liquid. This was perfect for lining baskets so that anything could be made portable in these weaved items. A great alternative to pottery. Another place worth mentioning in a bid to demonstrate how widespread and diverse global agriculture was during the Neolithic is the highlands of New Guinea. It was here in around 7,000 BCE that we can see cultivation of crops such as banana, taro and yam. VILLAGES TO TOWNS So we have gone over the initial changes that we can attribute to the Neolithic. We have cited potential reasons why this dramatic change in human lifestyle took place and we have looked closely at the actual changes and the fact that this didn't just happen in one place only, but all around the world. Now we need to examine the long-term effects of this dramatic change. We mentioned the Hasuna culture earlier in the podcast as the Mesopotamian culture who are attributed with creating the first kilns. Another of the Mesopotamian cultures, the Halafian, is cited as a place where villages started to become towns. The truth is that this is something that was going on around a number of the rivers of the Fertile Crescent. The Euphrates and Tigris of Mesopotamia, and the Nile of Egypt. We mentioned the Hasuna and Halafian cultures of northern Mesopotamia. The people of another northern Mesopotamian culture, the Samaran, started a canal building project at a site called Chogamami in maybe between 6,000 and 5,500 BCE. Irrigation projects like this would help those village cultures of Mesopotamia develop into settlements that could sustain more and more people. Farm production would have come under more and more pressure to keep up with the needs of the growing population, and those idle individuals would have been required to work the farms by those individuals administering the settlement. This is not the unlikeliest scenario. For the initiation of class based societies, which were necessary for keeping the community working together for each other. The technology of farming would also need to modernise. Ploughing fields was made a lot easier by the development of oxen drawn ard ploughs. This would enable farming communities to produce crops at a higher rate and, coupled with irrigation of rivers, would allow for wider areas. To be prepared for agriculture a necessity to replace those irrigated fields that had become too salinized and infertile humans would also start using animals for their milk and these agricultural techniques would begin to find their way into the lands of modern europe european European advances. advances neolithic cultures are believed to have filtered into europe from anatolia maybe in the late 7th millennium BCE. Certainly, by the middle of the 6th millennium BCE, we can see a very distinct variety of farming culture along the Danube, Elbe, and Rhine rivers, which pretty much are at the heart of continental Europe. We are specifically talking about the modern countries of Hungary, Austria, Slovakia, Czechia, Germany and the Netherlands. The culture is referred to as the Linear Pottery Culture, or by the German name linear band Keramik, or LBK for short. These agricultural cultures brought along with them a very distinct variety of pottery, by which we receive this name. The people of the linear band Keramik, were not the first culture of Europe to domesticate wild species, but they were a very significant farming culture whose influence spread across the entire continent. They were domesticating emma and einkorn wheat, peas and lentils, and they also had the Vavilovian mimics such as rye, as well as other weed crops such as bitter vetch, a good source of food for domestic ungulates. The people of the Linearbandkeramik culture were very talented when it came to building their houses as they would construct long houses made from timber with wattle and daub walls and thatched roofs. One particular site of the Linearbandkeramik at Talheim in modern day Germany shows evidence of the violent massacre of 34 people. These people were likely to have been attempting to flee from the violence and this would be supported by the nature of the wounds. It appears that the people were killed by arrows and even being struck by adzes. There is very little evidence of such mass violence before the date of the site which is 5000 BCE so this could be evidence of one of the first conflicts of Europe. Somewhat simultaneously to this and to the south, specifically the area within the modern-day country of Bulgaria, we can see the emergence of metallurgy and the deliberate mining and manufacture of copper and copper artefacts. We can also see the emergence of the use of gold, which was also being mined and discovered in the same area of the world. Over in the west of the European continent, we can see the excitement of megalithic construction a few thousand years after the wonder of Göbekli Tepe. It does appear that these people believe strongly in the spiritual power of megaliths, where we are more inclined to see token offerings of grains and metals contained in a pot being submitted to the mines and graves of Eastern Europe. This brings us up to a point in time around 5000 BCE. 5th millennium BCE Certainly, we believe that in the Americas, similar Neolithic advances were taking place, with the peoples of the Americas very likely having the absolute minimum possibility of contact with other global cultures. It does appear that the same environmental, climatic and population pressures were leading to agricultural lifestyles everywhere in the world. Llamas and alpacas were certainly being pastoralized and selectively bred in the Andean regions of South America. We even know that copper mining was taking place in North America which has to have been something that coincidentally emerged as it did in Eurasia. There is so little possibility of any extensions of knowledge between Eurasian cultures and American cultures. This could also be supported by the fact that copper smelting is something believed to have been happening in Eurasia, but not in North America, where they were simply cold hammering native copper. And we can see strong evidence of this emerging in the area of the Great Lakes. Certainly, we believe that the cultures of Mesopotamia had learned how to smelt copper and produce cast metal objects during the 5th millennium BCE and it appears that irrigation was much more commonplace. Irrigation like farming would have been a task that needed manpower to succeed and this would further build the platform for the requirement of a master and slave society where there were those who gave the instructions and those who received them. We look closely at the stratification of settlements in episode 21 regarding the emergence of the first towns from villages. Stratification is another way to describe the process of a town becoming class-based. Uruk, an early city-state of Mesopotamia, provides a good case for study of the kind of settlement that had to undergo radical changes throughout its early existence. Due to Uruk's success, it has lent its name to the Uruk period, which is a cultural period of Mesopotamia. Uruk would have been the home to thousands and would have needed to have been governed much like a sovereign state in its own right. This would have been necessary to keep the population from breaking apart and for keeping them all focused on the success of the city. Once again, the pottery of this era is fascinating, as it does appear that on the Iranian plateau, pots were being created with the use of a potter's wheel, or a tournet wheel. The tournet wheel would have essentially been a flat disc which had a cone at its base which would be placed in a hole, allowing the entire object to spin. The pots excavated during this period strongly suggest that they were constructed using the tournet wheel technique. It also appears that irrigation techniques had spread out from the Fertile Crescent also and we can see evidence of irrigation at prehistoric sites in the modern day country of Yemen and in the Indus Valley. Elsewhere in the world we can see that the cultures of China had developed expert ability in the cultivation of wet rice whereby they would cultivate rice in flooded paddy fields which had been ploughed in preparation. 4th millennium Millennium BCE BCE. So we finally move into what we could describe as the last prehistoric millennium, before the most recent and actually historical last five millenniums. We can really start to see the modernisation of societies and rapid advances in technology during this period. We are pretty confident by this time that the people of the Eurasian steppes had managed to tame the wild horse and would be able to domesticate it. This would give humans a very fast animal to ride, meaning that not only could they cover long distances in a shorter amount of time, but the power of the horse could also be harnessed and used to pull objects. This was also something that oxen had been used for in the Fertile Crescent. The people of Mesopotamia had started to understand the value of a plough being pulled by two oxen. Throughout Eurasia the spread of wheeled vehicles was rapid. Waggons would become the perfect way to transport large sleds of goods and oxen would have the power to pull them. It is around the same time that we have confident evidence of an effective potter's wheel emerging in southern Mesopotamia, so we can safely say that the whole technology of wheels evidently took off during the 4th millennium BCE. In the Mediterranean lands of Europe, we can clearly see evidence of the successful domestication of the vine plant and the olive tree, something which we culturally link to this area of the world to this very day. Administration Administration. During the late 4th millennium BCE we can really see the economic pressures of the bustling city-states of Mesopotamia becoming apparent as effective administration would have been required to keep these city-states in order. We know that the people of the city-states of Mesopotamia were using stamp seals. The stamp seals would have undoubtedly been used as a means of officially identifying the authenticity of something. The seals would have been in use in Mesopotamia throughout the Pottery Neolithic. There are currently teams at the British Museum attempting to determine more information about the early usages, of stamp seals, but certainly by the 4th millennium BCE, their importance would have grown in an established class-based society. The biggest aspect of administration during the late 4th millennium BCE was the emergence of writing. Cuneiform had been attributed a date of around 3,200 BCE and would have involved incisions on clay tokens. The meaning of the writing is debated but believed to be an account of commodities or stock so this is clearly a means by which to keep a tally of events and trades going on within the city and a means of administering these transactions. If we look elsewhere then one of the most famous types of script to emerge at a similar time are the hieroglyphs of Egypt. It is not absolutely clear what the exact purpose of these first writings were this is also the case for those scripts which have been found in western iran a place which saw many cultural migrations from mesopotamia during the neolithic due to its relative closeness to the contemporary banks of the persian gulf similarly we can also see advances in metallurgy in this part of the world The Chinese had only really started to embrace metallurgy at the end of the fourth millennium BCE, but in Western Asia, a major advance was taking place. Here, we would see the development of bronze, an attractive and strong metal alloy, in most cases being a combination of smelted copper and tin. This would symbolize the end of the Stone Age and the beginning of the Bronze Age. The emergence of writing would symbolize the end of prehistory and the beginning of history. The city-states of Mesopotamia would forge trading and diplomatic ties which would bring about the first ruling dynasty of the Sumerian peoples. Menes, or Nama as he may otherwise be known, Had brought the Egyptian settlements around the Nile River together under one banner as a collective Egyptian kingdom with a pharaoh as its ruler. Most other areas of the world would continue to develop naturally until history would ultimately reach them and forge their futures, which in turn would become our histories. Next time, we will enter the ancient world with a new volume of podcasts aimed towards the cultures of the near east before the lifetime of jesus christ the 3000 years of egyptian prosperity before the interference of foreign invaders and the civilizations of europe south asia east asia and the Americas. I would like to thank you for listening to this week's podcast and I would like to thank everybody who has listened to all 24 podcasts of Volume 1 The Prehistoric World. Some messages then from the World of History of the World podcast. Uh, Stolly Nordos had got in touch with us uh, this week. I really enjoy your podcast. Keep up the good work. Surprising that not more people are following it. Um, well, it is only new. It's it's less than six months old, so we're not necessarily going to have um, too many people following it. Then uh, more established podcasts will have more people following them. Um, having said that, the amount of listens we're getting per month now is becoming considerable. So we may have to look into that as we go into the new year. We might have to look to expand the abilities of the podcast and the hosting uh, site. So we'll we'll have a quick look at that. I've also got a nice message from Jim Maloney. Love the podcast, love your accent, enjoying it. Best regards, Jim Maloney in Livermore, California. Um, brilliant to know that people all around the world are listening to the podcast. We've had uh, contact from Japan, Singapore, America. It's wonderful, absolutely wonderful that we can bring the world close together with these podcasts. I have to say once again a big thank you to Ryan Stitt at the History of Ancient Greece podcast for tirelessly promoting my podcast. I've mentioned it so many times before, but every time it does deserve a thank you. And I'm sure many listeners have come in my direction thanks to ryan's very generous actions and uh, i will continue to try and uh, promote your podcast as well it's an, it's a very good podcast as well uh, the history of ancient greece so if you enjoy this podcast i've got no reason to think that you wouldn't enjoy that one as well so go and have a listen to it well that's pretty much it the first volume of podcasts is now over prehistory the prehistoric world is complete we've done it we've finished well done to everyone who stuck it out you've done well and it's been a, a, an amazing story so thank you so much so that's it volume 1 all done all finished we've put it to bed we've done it finish so what's going to happen next that's the big question so We're going to take a little break. There's a lot of things that I need to catch up on. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. I've got to sort of catch up. I've got to plan the next uh, series of podcasts, the next volume of podcasts on the ancient world. And also, I've got a number of maps which I haven't done, which I need to draw up. We need the maps. They're very important. So I've felt fallen behind on that, unforgivably, and I need to catch up with those. So there's a lot of work for me to do in terms of getting set up for the ancient world podcasts. But I'm hopeful that we won't be um, waiting too long. I, I think New Year, sometime within the first month of New Year, is realistic, to be honest. But To be honest with you, I don't like to leave you in the dark. Um, Certainly when I went gallivanting around East Africa earlier this year, I did still manage to present some unscripted podcasts. So I will endeavour to keep in touch with you all during that uh, hiatus, if you like. So I'm not envisaging it's going to be months and months, maybe a few weeks, and then we'll be back and hitting the ancient, world hard and we'll be well prepared for it which is exactly why i want to take that break so this is why we're going to do it we want to get prepared we want to get it right um and we want to make it as good as possible it may also give me a good opportunity to go back over the 24 podcasts that we've already published and just tidy up a few little things that should have been done um at the time or maybe weeks ago so that will be something that we'll be doing over the course of the next few weeks. Then we'll be back, the ancient history of the world. So thank you very much for your time in listening to the podcast. I'll be back next week uh, to give you an update on how things are going, but until then, have yourself a wonderful week and I'll be speaking to you very soon. Don't forget to keep in touch via the social media platforms. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show History of the World Podcast at mail.com Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.